Which my big shout to my latest Patreon supporter, Jeremy Gibbs. Jeremy Gibbs is uh, he's an absolute legend. Actually, he is uh, he's the founder of Forces Farming, and uh, Forces Farming is an organisation that uh, uh, exists um, because Jeremy wants to do more to support service leavers and veterans uh, who are in their resettlement phase, but also who have left and uh, and showing them and be able to show them the opportunities there are in the agricultural sector. Agricultural sector? Agricultural sector. Jeremy, thank you for supporting me via Patreon and uh, mate, everything you do for, for the Forces community. Um, we haven't known each other long, but um, I already know you're an absolute legend, legend of a bloke. Keep it going, buddy. And uh, again, thank you. If you would like to join up as a Patreon supporter, you can do it at patreon.com forward slash hkpodcasts. You get access to all of the podcasts so HR podcasts and also the other series I do, which is called the Leading Mind series. You get access to all of these uh, before anyone else uh, does. Get, yeah, they're released before, to Patreons before anyone else. And uh, you'll also get other perks. So, um, yeah, patreon.com forward slash HK podcast. Thanks again, Jeremy. And thank you to all of my other Patreons. You are all legends in your own right. Also, thank you to my sponsors today. Sponsoring the podcast are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation who were formed in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker, who was sadly killed in operations in 2008, serving with the Parachute Regiment in Afghanistan. And since Rugby for Heroes was founded, they've raised over £110,000, which is a huge amount of money when they only do one or two events a year. Um, High-quality events, obviously, to be able to raise that amount of money for military charities. They are also behind the... Uh, the founding of uh, the Forces Barbarians RFC, which is a, a club um, that brings together the military community, the rugby, rugby community, again, in the name of raising money for military charities via Rugby for Heroes. Um, so, uh, yeah, thank you to Mike and everybody at Rugby for Heroes doing what you do. They had a load of events lined up for 2020. Things have gone pear-shaped. Obviously, this is a mental year, um, but they want to get those events back on track as soon as they can. They, uh, they've got supper clubs lined up. They've got beer and gin festivals lined up. They've got rugby festivals lined up. You need to keep an eye on what's going down on their website. So rugbyforheroes.org, rugbyforheroes.org. Um, keep an eye on that. And uh, But like I said, so I mentioned the, the Forces Barbarians, RFC, the FUBARs. Um, the FUBARs actually were able to play a game yesterday uh, at the time of me recording this. They played the game yesterday. And uh, and so there is Rugby for Heroes and the Fubars have managed to get an event underway event and an event done anyway, even though all this craziness going on this year, even though um, everything is against forces barbarians, everything's been against the Fubars to try and get an event underway just because of the way the situation is. But they managed to achieve it nonetheless and completely legally. <laughs> That's the important point. Completely within the uh, COVID guidelines, the RFU guidelines, and um, and the return to rugby guidelines, and they pulled off an event yesterday. That is what kind of organisation Rugby for Heroes are. They will do everything in their power to get their events going to support the military community. So, like I said, rugbyforheroes.org to find out more about them. And on social media, they're rug- at they're at rugby number four heroes rugby for heroes on social media cool thank you to mike and everybody there also sponsoring the podcast today are the aardvark group founded 
1982, they were founded with the express objective of developing a mechanical landmine clearing system which would meet the design criteria which Aardvark's founders considered to be the prime critical factors, namely for the clearance of all known anti-tank and anti-personnel mines, of which there are a shed load around the world waiting to make someone's day a misery. Um, and, but also uh, the location, identification and disposal of all munitions and unexploded ordnance. So not just mines, it's all munitions and unexploded ordnance just hiding, waiting to fuck someone up. Um, in the process of developing the design criteria for their mechanical landmine clearance equipment, it became evident that there were two distinct and mutually exclusive applications. They were minefield breaching under combat conditions, but also post-conflict and humanitarian area clearance. The consequence of Aardvark's design philosophy... Uh, I'm messing my words today. The consequence of their design philosophy has been to produce the most effective specialised vehicle for the destruction or detonation of landmines, but while permitting the flail system to be adapted for attachment to a, a minefield breaching machine. The task to clear the world of landmines is enormous. The estimate of numbers of landmines varies, but it's in excess of 90 million. Um, some sources, like the Red Cross, they're estimating over 110 million mines hidden around the world just waiting to destroy someone. The problem is not just the number of mines, but it's also the the huge areas that are contaminated. For example, a small country such as Croatia, which is well, has been well mapped, um, it's got an area of 4,000 square kilometres contaminated by minefields and randomly scattered mines. That's 4 billion square metres, right? It's a huge area. And since area clearance is the real issue, the cost of clearance per square metre is vital to commercial viability of the clearance process. Um, cost effectiveness and the safety of the operators is of paramount importance to Aardvark. For more than five decades, they've been developing technical innovations which support operators fighting at the front line of conservation and the protection of natural resources around the world. You can find out more about the Aardvark Group and everything they do um, at aardvark.group. They don't just deal with mine clearance and unexploded ordnance clearance. They deal in uh, supporting the military community, obviously, uh, demonstrated uh, one of the ways through supporting this podcast. Uh, and they also employ a huge, a, a huge uh, proportion a huge proportion of the workforce is um, ex-military. So, um, yeah, give, give Aardvark a follow. Look for them on social media. They're everywhere. They're called the Aardvark Group. And their website is aardvark.group. Thank you to David St. John Clare, the head of the helm there, and everybody at the team. You are very much appreciated. On to the podcast today. My guest is a... Disaster response ninja. He is uh, a person who completely undersells himself. He's a very modest individual. Um, and he, he's recently been awarded an MBE. His name's Paul Taylor. Paul Taylor, uh, for many years, has been, uh, like I said, doing humanitarian uh, humanitarian aid, disaster response, going to places that are getting smashed by predominantly natural disasters, and he is helping people survive, um, helping people get back on with their lives. Um, and uh, he is a critical piece of the of the of the uh, management management at React Response, uh, formerly Team Rubicon UK. Um, and he got his MBE along with another lady called uh, Lizzie Stileman, who was also part of, uh, a part of React Response. They got their MBEs um, for their contribution to the the national uh, response, I should say, um, to the pandemic since March uh, on Operation React. Uh, it's really glad I could get him on. Uh, this has been in the wind for a while, and he is he, he almost 
all of his time is taken up by helping other people uh, in in crisis, and so trying to time down for a podcast is really difficult. However, we got it done, and uh, we you're going to enjoy it. You're going to enjoy it. You're going to get a real good glimpse into what it's like uh, to be a disaster responder, and what it's like to um, to go out your way outside of the military when you've left to go out your way to go and help other people in a, in a darkest times uh, in uh, risky environments this is the hr podcast my name is hugh Keir, and my guest today is paul taylor mbe paul taylor paul taylor mbe ron mate first off uh massive congratulations on uh, the award of the Member of the Order of the British Empire. Is that the, is that the full I think it is. Yeah, it's that. Yeah. Member of the Order of the British Empire. Yeah. Congratulations. Cheers. But I will say, and I'm sure Lizzie would say exactly the same thing, that if you're in a team like we're in, and which you're obviously a part of, then you're standing on the shoulders of giants. You know, you just happen to be, me and Lizzie happen to be the people who do the recce's. We get a lot of the publicity, because, you know, it's the nature of the beast that comes with the territory. But there is a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes and there are a lot of unheralded heroes in React and definitely for me it's just a recognition of all the work that previously Team Rubicon now React has done. So well done Hugh for all your work in uh, Mozambique, you're definitely part of that. <laughs> Thank you, but you're also loving it, right? <laughs> <laughs> Mate, feel, what, uh, any, any change in the way you perceive what you do or anything like that since the award of it? Did you know it was coming? Yeah, you, you, get, no, you get told beforehand. You get so I was on a security risk management course up in York, Frontier Risks, good people, and I got a email from the cabinet office, completely out of the blue, saying that the prime minister, on behalf of the Queen, um, is asking you to accept the award. And then I think, you know, when you're, and again, when it's for the team, there isn't any like. Do I want to? Of course, I want to accept the award. Um, but I think definitely when you're in part of a team, you're accepting it on behalf of the team. So yeah, you then have to acknowledge that you're going to accept it, um, accept the reasons why. In this case, it was humanitarian support to COVID nineteen response. Send it back. Oh, so, so it's it COVID specific. Specifically, I thought, it was, COVID. I thought you got it from all of your stuff. No. So specifically for the work you did with the React yes, during the COVID. During COVID. And Lizzie's was for her incident management. So she was in Standing Joint Command in Aldershot, which for those who aren't aware is where the army coordinate all their like homeland operations from. In Mon- I think it's near Montgomery Barracks. And Lizzie was in there doing that. So she's, that's what she got her MBE for. That's amazing. Congratulations to both of you. Shame Lizzie can't be here. I'm yeah, sure, 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 sure she can make yeah, her yeah, on. future podcast. She's got well. some good stories to tell. Second, she's got some good stories to tell. Yeah, definitely will make it happen. Yeah, no, mate. Honestly, flipping brilliant, and uh, it's um, it's a, to be honest, it's a pleasure to be part of the team, and something I didn't know about two years, yeah, two years ago was completely unaware, and then two years later, it's part of a, a, a very big bunch of changes that's gone on in my life, positive yeah. changes, uh, react response, being one of them. You know, yeah. Um, you were saying, mate. You were saying. Before we started, that uh, this the COVID situation. This is the longest you've spent in the UK in one go since you left the military. I think so. Yeah. Right, let's 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 explain that. <laughs> so I left the. So I was in the army for twenty six years. Royal Regiment Fusiliers. Um, 
was a warrant officer. My last four years were in Sennybridge Camp. Happy days. Oh, um, God. Running our divisional training team, which was very much like Parachute Regiment, Household Division, Centralised Courses. That was like the model. Prepping people to go on Brecon, sniper training, all that kind of stuff, in Sennybridge, in the hills. Little bit of a trip out from there to Afghanistan for about three months. Um, but primarily UK-based. Got out in 2011 and f- kind of fell into guiding expeditions. So I was trying to forge a career in the outdoors. Um, someone put me in touch with Tom Bodkin, who with Lev, who you've previously had on the podcast, set up Seacrest Compass, which a lot of people will know. And they were starting to grow and they wanted more expedition leaders. Hang on. Lev Lev Wood. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know he was part of it. Yep. Jesus. So they, so there's, so there's a guy called Tom Bodkin, really good guy. He's still, I think he's now the MD, I think, of Secret Compass. He and Lev both got out of Parareg at the same time um, and set up Secret Compass. Ballsy move. Let's get out and set up this expedition company. And I think when they set it up, it was going, the the niche bit of it was, we're going to get conflict zones. So they were going to South Sudan, Afghanistan, um, Panama, and they wanted me to take a trip out to Sierra Leone. And I'd spent a year living out in Sierra Leone when I was in the army on a training team. So no dramas, I'd do that. So I kind of joined the team, started doing expeditions for Secret Compass, which is great. Um, three trips out to Sierra Leone, a couple of trips out to Gabon, uh, Congo. And then I... Um, working for lots of other people as well. So a nice lifestyle, getting paid to go to interesting places with an army pension, kind of top up the monthly salary. And then in, so that was kind of, that was away a lot. You know, that was go away on a month long, month long exped, come back, do your washing, week later, you're ready to go somewhere again. And when you're a freelancer, it's kind of like feast and famine. So when the work's coming in and it's available, you know, it's like you're, you're taking it. Um, so lots of time away, which was great. And then 2015, the Nepal earthquake happened, which was the game changer for me, like you said about React. I was, prior to that, I envisaged myself seeing my days out, taking people on expeds, you know, doing overseas stuff. And the day that I wake up on a beach somewhere and I've had enough, that's when I'll give it up. You know what I mean? The day I'm not doing it for like the love that's when I'll give it up and I'll do something else or I'll retire. And the Nepal earthquake happened and I'd just been out in Nepal leading a trek and I'd been back for a couple of weeks and there had been a lot of talk, unbeknown to me at the time, behind the scenes between General Sinek Parker, who's now our chairman of React, a good bloke, and David Petraeus, general type in the US. And they had both been working in Afghanistan together at whatever time. And I know that Petraeus was saying to Nick Parker, we should have like a UK arm to this whole Team Libcon thing, right? And there's a guy called Wisey, David Wiseman, really good bloke. He is a Yorkshire officer, really good story to tell, injured in Afghanistan. Um, and he was kind of part of that little team setting that up. Can I just jump in? Of course you can. Sorry, I didn't realise that General Petraeus was involved with TR. He was so the, how? What was his involvement with TR? I think that he was the chairman or something okay. like that. Chairman of the board, maybe, of TR USA when it first set up. Um, so he's saying to Nick Parker, you know, Brits should be getting involved in this. So they're already having these conversations. The Nepal earthquakes happened. 
straight away links that we've got with Nepal, UK, and primarily Gurkhas. So whoever made the decision, whether it was Petraeus or whether it was Nick, they decided to send, I think it's about 15 of us, 10 of those were probably Gurkha veterans. And that completely changed the dynamic for TRUSA because you've now got people who understand the culture, speak the language, know the country. Um, so massively accelerated what they were able to achieve. Again, really good people. There's of note, there's a guy, I think he might still be serving reservist. He's got a restaurant slash pub in Colchester, Umesh. So Queen's Gurkha officer, absolutely nails, really dynamic guy. And he was like heading us up really and heading up the Gurkha faction. Really well respected in Nepal. So by virtue of the fact that you've got him there and he's on your team, just opens up loads of doors. Um, but but sorry, but at this point, TRUK was not born. Was not was not formed. So you went out there as TRUSA. As part of TRUSA. So we oh, were out right. there as okay. Americans. Oh, yeah. 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 Under their training command, essentially. Um, and it was great. So for people who've been out to Nepal, Nepal is one of those places... And there aren't many, and I'm quite lucky. You know, I've managed to travel all over the world. Nepal is a place that I will go back to time and time again. You know, if you said to me after this podcast, do you want to go to Nepal next week? COVID, you know, dependent, I'd go to Nepal. Some places you go and you're like, well, that was interesting. And I saw the sights and I, and I, yeah, I had a nice time, but I'm kind of done. That's me. I mean, I'm really lucky with React. I've been back to Nepal, I think, since 2015, nine times. Just doing jobs in Nepal. Um, so we did the earthquake response and then while I was there it really was like this light bulb moment for me there is a lot that can be achieved by small groups of determined people out in the hills particularly in Nepal on an earthquake response and the reason for that was I a lot of TRUSA and our attachments were working in a place called Shermatang which is in near Helen Booth for people who know Nepal um, and they're doing a really good job and they've got into this village and they're, you know, helping local people get back on their feet. And I had been a, done a little bit of that and I went back in for a bit of R&R back in Kathmandu and I got told by a guy called Bob, who was like head the US ops officer, we've been approached by some climbers and they want a medic who can get out in the hills and I've given them your name. So you've got to go to the Yak and Yeti Hotel, Kathmandu, and you'll get a brief. So these guys were Willie and Damien Banegas. They're known as the Banegas brothers. They might be twins, but they're from Patagonia, Argentinian. Um, and they are elite climbers. I think Willie's got like 12, 13 Everest summits. And their business is that every single year they just do the Everest season. So clients pay a lot of money and they guide people up Everest and other big 8,000 meter peaks during the climbing season, <clears throat> kind of end of April through to May, early June. And they had been a every space camp when the earthquake happened which caused a subsequent avalanche did a lot of good using their medical skills squaring people away and then what they did is they said to their sherpas we want you to go out and identify people out in the hills who no one has got to yet and they went to they leaned in on people like their sponsors patagonia north face whoever and said right we want some bucks because we want to buy blankets, we want to buy rice, and we want to buy tarpaulins. And I think they might have even done a little bit of a mini speaking to, I think they went to Switzerland, where all the money is, and implored people, give us some money for Nepal. So they kind of used their celebrity status and their notoriety to get money. 
I met up with them um, in Kathmandu. I think Damien had gone ahead to the epicentre of the earthquake, earthquake, a place called Laprak, and met um, Willie and a guy called Mike Monez, who is 17, and he was trying to be the youngest guy to do the seven summits, so the highest peak on each continent. 17 is nails. And Willie had said to me that when the earthquake happened and the avalanche at base camp, he knew Mike's father, Mike's only 17, and he's kind of looking after him while they're guiding him up these peaks. He said, Mike, just go in your tent and I'll tell you when to come out, basically. And he said about half an hour later, he saw Mike, firemen's lifting bodies to like the casualty collection point. And he said that he's 17 and 95% of the time he's a man and 5% of the time he's a teenager. And I'll give him the 5%. Mm. You know, he's going to make the odd mistake. But incredible guy. He's like 17. Where is, where is he from? He's from the States. Okay. So he's an American. Yeah. And so I met these two guys, got the brief. This is what we want. Went back to our like fob, got my kit. Got in a 4x4 with a Nepalese driver, and we were driving out to Laprak, which is epicenter of the earthquake, in a place called Gorka, where the Gurkhas come from. And that's probably a six-hour drive. So we went into a place called Tamil, which a lot of people know, been to Nepal. And um, Willie jumped out to get, like, a bowser of water to put on top of the 4x4. And, as he, and we're just, like, sat talking in the wagon. As he comes out, he put his hand on the bonnet, and he says afterwards, once bit and twice shy, I knew there was going to be another earthquake. I could feel the vibration on the bonnet. He then starts shouting at me to get out. I don't know what he's talking about. You know what I mean? I, I haven't felt it. You know, I'm the earthquake virgin. I haven't felt it yet. So he's dragged Mike out. He's got me and the Nep- Nepali driver out. Dragged you out of the car. Out of the car. And we've run down the road and we're now in the second earthquake. Can, can, sorry, just... What I'm trying to understand you is, why is that an action on? What, how do you run away from an earthquake? So, what you need to do, if you're in an urban environment, you need to get out of the footfall of the buildings. Because that is what is going to kill you. It's going to be the most... And unless my experience of earthquakes is, in the rural environment, so when you're out in the hills, unless it's much, in terms of your own kind of melt and well-being, it's much easier to go to sleep at night. Because unless that bit of real estate where your tent is pitched opens up you're going to be alright because there's nothing to fall so so that's where you select your campsite so where so you look around like Deadfall in the jungle you look around where is there nothing's going to fall on me so if you are so for often us with React when we go away people will give us uh, some accommodation and we'll go we're going to sleep outside and we'll put our little mozzie pods up 30 metres away in a field Outside the building. Well, you can sleep inside if you want. It's all right, we're fine. And explain why we can sleep outside. So, but, so Willie's had it before, right? Because he's just lived through an earthquake. So that, he'd lived through a 7.8 earthquake, and this was a 7.2. Um, in, in, in relative terms, explain how severe those, that is. So you have got a... Um, yeah, the scale for measuring earthquakes goes up to... Um, up to 10 anything above seven is a major earthquake the ground is opening up the ground is opening up yeah biblical biblical and it is so for about 30 seconds there is a deafening roar the buildings are collapsing 
we've run down about 50 metres down the street to get out of the footfall of these buildings. And we are quite experienced people. And we are all in the middle of the road hugging each other, all looking up to make sure that there isn't anything that's going to fall on us for about 30 seconds. And for What's the ground doing? I mean, is it throwing you? What is the, the ground, ground is, is like shaking. The ground is shaking. And, and, the, and the worst thing is, it's the buildings that are collapsing. Because you see it on TV... Yeah. Right, so you are you've been there. Yeah. Right. So the ground, the is, ground like is shaking. shaking. Ground is shaking, and it's the it's much scarier in the urban environment because the buildings are collapsing. Right. Um, so buildings are collapsing. People are screaming, and that that lasted about thirty seconds. Right. And then for about what was the most bizarre thing for about ten minutes afterwards, the tarmac road that we were stood on was going up and down like a wave machine. Didn't break up. For whatever reason, tarmac didn't break up or splinter. It was just going up. Like a wave machine. Like a wave machine. Uh, 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 like what frequency? Slow, fast? Quite slow. Just like... Uh, oh, my God. And we're just still... You can see it. You can see it. You're on it. You feel it. You're just up and down and up for about 10 minutes. That was completely bizarre. So I get the ground start shaking, the buildings are going to collapse. But I wasn't expecting that to happen. And then that, that finished... And then we, there's obviously chaos, right? That's the nature of the beast. After an event like that, it was always chaos. So we then um, tried to pull some people out from under the buildings. We, the police arrived, so we gave the police some, so the police were trying to put up a cordon because there were um, electric wires that were fizzing around, bouncing about in the street. Um, but they didn't have any you know, mine tape, as we would have, you know, if you were in the military. So we gave them some climbing ropes, tried a climbing rope, across the road, said to the police officers... Right, a physical cordon. Keep everyone out. Yeah. So you've got physical cordon. Keep everyone out. Um, decided that we had kind of done our bit after however long that took. And then we... And the nature of the beast when you're doing disaster responses, for, you know, in any normal job, that would be enough to have an afternoon and off, right? Just being in a big earthquake. So, so you're now... You know what I mean? You're now getting in your wagon and you're driving towards what you're going to do in the first place. You're responding to the first earthquake. And I remember we drove for about an hour, and I've been to this cafe a couple of times when I've been back to Nepal, and in complete silence. And then we just stopped, and we went in, you know, got a Coke, bottle of Coke or whatever, and then we just looked at each other, and we had a big sigh, and then just started talking about it. Right, everyone all right? You know, back in, basically. And then we drove, um, yeah, then for about another five hours, probably out to Gorka, um, and it's Barpak Laprak, and that is where all the there's loads of people there cutting about in Gurkha tracksuits, you know, green tracksuits, um, 7GO, that kind of stuff. Salute you when you walk past. So we went to a place called. Um, what that was happening in the village? What? The. In the, the tracksuits? Yeah, yeah. So you still get. So Nepali, you, you get people who got out of the army 10 years ago who still got their Gurkha rifles <laughs> tracksuit. <laughs> I didn't know Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they're mega proud, mega. obviously. Yeah, that is mega. For Civ, for Civ Pop. For Civvy's listening, so when when Gurkhas come from Nepal and they join, they 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 manage to qualify and they get the UK and join up, they issued Gurkhas are issued with uh, that's what Paul's talking about. They're issued with a like an all-in-one, not an all-in-one, a, a green tracksuit, green top, green bottoms, and the only Gurkhas get it. It's got the two uh, got the two cookeries, cookeries yeah. on uh, cross cookeries on it, a cap badge. And uh, what you're talking about is yeah, they're still cutting about, they're still cutting about in these tracksuits yeah, and silk shadows. Yeah. Brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. 
And yeah, we went to a place called Ram Rung, which was as close as you could get to the affected area with the road by by road. And the reason that nobody had been to the epicenter of the earthquake because all the roads had been taken out. So the winding road that gets you, and this place is at about two and a half thousand meters, so it's just like getting into high altitude. And when we got there, the Sherpas who they dispatched to score it all the way. Had had the money, and we had piles of um, we had sacks of rice, piles of blankets and tarpaulins, and what they were doing was they were paying the locals to carry loads, which is what people do in Nepal routinely, you know, incredibly strong, um, and it's about a twenty kilo load that they would carry, and it's a six hour trek. So we are then trekking for us. We've got our own kit, so we've got like rucksack, two weeks worth of kit. Um, there are the Sherpas there, there's some local people there, and we're paying them to carry loads. That's basically what we, that was how we were going to get aid up to the top. But then for me, I'm now with two people who have been at Everest Base Camp for a month, climatizing. I've just flown in from the UK, follow me, six hours uphill, completely hanging out. It's completely epic. <laughs> Trying to keep up with these two You're in touch, yeah. mountain goats. Um, and then there were bits there with a road route where they were just climbing and I was following them. And I'm like, you know, this is really sketchy because if I was in the UK, you know, I'd definitely be on a rope. And if I was climbing this, I wouldn't be carrying a rucksack, but you just kind of follow, follow him where they go. And then we got to the top um, and then we met Damien up there, the other brother. And we had like a big um, meeting with all the elders and they explained what their plan was. And basically said, look, you're not going to get any money um, for however long until this earthquake sorts itself out. So we're going to pay you. The only way that you're going to get aid up here until that road is cleared is by carrying it up. So we want you to get all the local people on board. Um, and we'll pay you a fair day's rate, you know, and they obviously that's their job, you know, doing that in the hills. So they're paying people a good day's rate, uh, wait. And we just have people ferrying up and down the hill. And then I, my, why they wanted a medic is because there was an American doctor up there and obviously by no means a doctor, I was a wilderness medic at best. And she was moving out and there was a gap of about four or five days until a British doctor came in who'd been at Everest Base Camp, Rachel. And I was basically holding the fort and they got another American medic in with me about a day later, Adam. And we were basically looking after about 500 people. Um, so doing the rounds. Casualties? Ca not casualties. So most of the casualties by now have been extracted. So a lot of the concerns now are injuries that have been exacerbated by the earthquake. So older people with bad backs, that primary healthcare type concerns. And the other thing that we had to do, so there was La Prac is on a is a little bit lower than where we were, and it's on a spur. So it's about it's not the best place to site a village of about you know five hundred people. And the problem with that was when the ground started shaking. Most of the buildings collapsed, the landslides. I think 18 people died out of the community. And what they had done is got them to move back up to some open ground. Again, that point I made about best place to be, you know, in an earthquake kind of situation. Um, and it was a little bit higher. And people had started building their own temporary shelters, so using tarpaulins. Eventually, we got them some sandbags and we told them how to show them how to fill sandbags, how to make a sandbag wall, all that kind of stuff. So what Adam and, I, Adam and I were doing as well is we were... Get, so there's still aftershocks now. We're going into the lower village and some of the elders had just 
resigned themselves to their fate. They're like, I was born here. This kind of stuff all that happens all the time. And if God wants my house to fall on top of me, then it's going to fall on top of me. Fine. Um, so we're explaining, to trying to coax them out of their house. And we were, for people who are on their own, we're finding them like foster families. So we'd find a family of like mum, dad and two kids. And we'll say, look, we found this elderly person. They've got nobody, haven't got any family. If we pay you to look after them, is that okay? Will you look after them? Will you help them build a shelter next to your house? Will you make sure that they're eating all right, that they get enough water, that they're getting some kind of human, you know, communication, all that kind of stuff. So we were doing a bit of that. And then we were, and then once the, the system was set up with people ferrying loads, we were going out looking for other villages that had been impacted, but no one had been to yet. So needs assessments. And in Nepal, that's like a 10 hour day. So that's like a four hour trek to not walk very far. Um, find a community, sit down with a head man, it's always a man in the pool, ascertain what their needs are, go back. And uh, we pro I think we did that for two weeks. Um, and then we went back to Kathmandu, a um, couple of days in Kathmandu, flew back, and then we all got together, all the people who'd been in the pool, some other people who were interested in Team Rubicon as it was, um, with Nick Parker, and Nick Parker basically said, We've done it. There's going to be a Team Rubicon UK. Right? So this is probably in May. And I think in October, Sorry, it became a charity. What year? What year? This is 2015. 2015. So about May, this is about May 2015. We've got everyone in. We've done a bit of training, barbecue, a few beers. Um, and Nick said, well, that's, that's kind of it. We're going to be, there's going to be a charity because we've proved we can do it. Um, so what do we think this charity looks like? And in my mind then, because of my experience in Nepal, I I very much knew what I thought it was going to look like. And it's kind of like what React looks like now. And it's getting people on the ground early, it's small teams, going to places that, you know, are a little bit more remote. And I think it took us a while as an organisation to get to that point. But I was very clear, this is what, particularly this is what veterans add that ability to carry a rucksack in an environment where you can only move on foot and help people. Well, it's a, it's a perfect balance, I think, with uh, which is obviously, which is I say obviously, it's not obvious because it's a personal thing to me. It's a it's a personal it's a perfect balance of what the organisation provides to beneficiaries or, or potential beneficiaries, and it's what it provides to the people who are part of it, who are arguably also beneficiaries yeah you know um one of the is it's no coincidence that now you spend like 99.9 percent .9 of your time doing react response stuff yeah you know and the 0.1 percent of your time actually doing stuff that you know is does not involve yeah, yeah 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 it's because everything you do with it and correct me wrong it is the stuff that is the most important to you in your life in in your personal life in your professional life but your professional life being you know, that's response, right? Uh, I've got a capability. I've got a unique set of skills. I've got a you know a a a, a background which isn't common to most people. Yeah. Uh, I'm taught. You've been trained and taught and experienced in dealing with extremely adverse situations, extremely high stress env environments, but dealing in a manner that does not indicate that you're actually undergoing a lot of stress. Yeah. In a calm, cool, and collected way. In a in a in a practical way that ensures the best possible outcome 
uh, and that's what React Response is, right? I mean, I can't. There was nothing. I, I can't think there was anything similar to this in the UK before. There was nothing like this. In the I don't UK think so. Before, was there? No, I don't think so. And I and and if that's the, and if that's what you explain the start point, and you're right, and I'm really lucky that in all the things that I'm interested in feed into what I do in React, right? So I'm interested in wilderness medicine, right? Happy days, just direct crossover to looking after people on an op, like our own team. Um, I'm interested in current affairs, security, the humanitarian piece. It all being out in the mountains, you know what I mean? It all kind of quite lucky, really. You know, and it is that thing, isn't it? It's like, what's the secret to having a successful life? Find something you enjoy and get paid for it. It's kind of that. And I was a volunteer at first. So I was a volunteer for three years um, alongside doing expeds. Um, and people, and the reason that works is people in the outdoors are kind of really understanding. So, you know, you're doing some work for somebody and you say, right, I've been asked to go to Haiti, take a recce out because it's been a hurricane. Yeah, if you go, mate, we'll find someone else to take some people walking or it was, you, you know, that they were employing you to do. So that was like the first Nepal. And then we, in terms of Nepal, we then, not long after, again, through Umesh, the Gurkha guy I was talking about, we identified a community in a place called Lapu Besi, which is about 5Ks from the epicentre of the earthquake, which had been completely smashed just by landslides. So they had had no electricity, school, um, and most of the houses had been destroyed. And we decided that we were going to help them build a school. And I think the key for the humanitarian piece is you're empowering the local community. You know, you don't. It, it doesn't make sense to send people from the UK to build a school in Nepal. What you bring is maybe a little bit of experience in project management, and the main thing you bring is funds. You know, you help them by generating money to empower them to do it. But the best way to do it is definitely by empowering the local workforce because you're giving them money. And the other thing, if you're you you're using a local workforce to do a task, they're invested in it. We're building our school. You know, it's not like yeah, we're building we're building a school for two weeks high five and then we're flying back to the UK it's like this is it you know you're invested in building this school which is going to serve your community for however many years so we identified this location through Umesh to be fair and then we went out on a recce I went out on the recce um, negotiation um, what's it look like what's the plan look like and then about a month later the team went out and I wasn't on that team and that's the bit that YZO I spoke about before I think he was leading it and that's the one that Prince Harry was on um, and then they built the school in Lapubesi, and then we went back, uh, however many months later, and we put some solar in for the school. So the solar powers some IT that they'd been donated. We helped build a some accommodation for them. So when we went on the recce to this place, you talk about education. We said like, so the school's been smashed. Where are the children educated now? And we went 800 meters up. So it's like going up the fan, you know, basically. And there are tarpaulins and kids under these tarpaulins doing, having lessons. And they're living there Monday to Friday. So they're trekking in on a Monday morning to be there for lunchtime. 10Ks, which is like a good, you know, a good six hours walk maybe in the mountains. They are then living in a tarpaulin in a sleeping bag cooking their own food on a gas stove. I mean, these are young kids. These all, are like All to go to school. All basically. to go to school. Mate, do you know what? You, go on, go on. And then they are, on a Friday, lunchtime, they go home. So weekend at home. And, and the reason for that was a lack of resource of teachers. So they basically didn't have enough teachers. So, so it's like a hub. So 
if we put a, a school, a temporary school in Lapibesi, the kids from all these surrounding villages will then walk in and we've got two teachers, let's say, and they're based there. Um, so it was a lack of resource of teachers that was driving that. But yeah, that's that's kids who are all because of education. Do you know what? Yeah. So this is one of the striking things to me when I did the uh, um, day in Mozambique. Uh, was it last year now? Early last year, and we came across a village that weeks in. And they had, they had not they were in a, an area that was completely cut off. I, I mean, you know this. Yeah, yeah. Probably remember it. They yeah. were in an area that was completely cut off. You couldn't get there by vehicle. Couldn't get there by anywhere. It was in a flood. It was like a floodplain. It'd be smashed by uh, by the floods. And we only found them because they because we did a we managed to procure a helicopter from oh who's the Swiss. The Swiss Mercier, uh, Mercier, yeah. Mercier. Yeah. Managed to procure a helicopter, Mercier, yeah. and myself and Conrad Froud and yeah. um, and uh, who's the guy who off the bootnecks? Uh, the the team leader, Angus, Angus, yeah. Angus, <laughs> Angus, about twelve years old. <laughs> <laughs> he's uh, he's doing well by all accounts. Anyway, yeah. so uh, we got a helicopter went over over the top. Just literally just looking down to see. Okay, can we find anyone that needs that is in clip? Yeah. We find anyone that's like, still alive or whatever. And there was. Um, an area, and he had uh, white. They they try and white flags to the top of the trees. They're trying to track helicopters. They've been spotted. Weeks later, long story short, we land. This whole place is smashed, right? So people's people's homes, their their huts, their everything was destroyed. And in line with what you were saying, right? In this is albeit it's not Nepal. Yeah. This is Mozambique. Yeah. And again, the first thing that they prioritised was education. The first place they rebuilt was the school. I call it a school hut. It was a school, like a school shed, like a yeah, big, yeah. massive, covered area over the top. I and mean, we talk like forty foot, thirty, forty foot long. And they'd. This is the first place prioritising that above people's homes, people, everything else. Build a school. Get the kids something to shelter in. Get the kids something to learn. Benches in there, tables in there, and they they were using all sorts of stuff to create this you know this cover for the kids to learn. And the teachers, when when the, when the homes started getting rebuilt, the teachers who were teaching, they didn't have any homes. They weren't there building their own homes. But what they were doing, they were hotbedding in everyone else's huts. So the rest of the village had made sure that, okay, school built, teachers had to build, yeah. now we need to house the teachers. And I, I remember when you were talking now, and I remember thinking back on that, it's like, man, just think about the lip service. We pay to education over here and the importance of it to the kids. Yeah. You know, and to our, and not just kids, but to teenagers and all yeah. that. And, and you look at that, that it, this is how hugely important it is at any level. And it, when you boil everything back, the priority is 100%, 100% right, I think. It's amazing. And it's just really interesting yeah, to hear your and, story And on for that. us, it's, it's on a plate, you know. And I am somebody who didn't take advantage of all the opportunities I had when I was a kid and I was getting it for free and have paid for myself and through the army to go to university 30-odd years later. You know, if I look back, why didn't I just screw them up and do it when it was, it was there for me? You know? Yeah, I think, well, just slight, digressing slightly, I think that the problem with that is you have to be in the mind frame. So when I was in school, I was in no learn. I was a sports person. I, yeah. I was good at running. I was good at rugby, right? And then I, my, I, I consciously remember it. I consciously remember thinking at the time. It was when I was in Iraq in 2000, my, uh, the second time, actually. Uh, so 2005, 
when I surveyed, I was maybe 24, 25. And all of a sudden, my brain went into, oh, yeah, I want to learn now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was, I was, yeah, and now 24, 25, my ass. I, uh, 23, 24, yeah. And like, man, I was reading three books a week, like nonstop. That's five months. It was a four-month tour. I did 20-odd books. I would just become a sponge. Now, um, I am digressing, but for the case of you and me, just the brains develop later and you get... You Absolutely. Know, and, the, and the other thing is when you're older, for me personally, is you you get more out of it, you know? I if I think, like, I've just done a Master's in Disaster Response whilst I've been responding to disasters. Do you know what I mean? So I started off a year when I was, like, freelancing. So I was going up to Manchester three days a week, fine. Quite enjoyed it, you know, the being in the debates and the tutorials and the kind of cut and thrust. And then I got, like, the React job. And then I was, like, belt-fed disasters. So I was writing essays in Indonesia after a day's work, my head torch, my laptop, on the plane, all of that. And I, I actually came back from Mozambique. So I went out to Mozambique for three weeks, came back for a week to go to university, and then went back out for two weeks. And the week I came back, the module was international disaster response. So you, do you know what I mean? So you're like, okay. Um, so you're kind of playing the game. Like, I don't want to stand up and say, you know, check me out. I've just come back from Mozambique. But you're kind of using that experience to inform the, the much younger people, actually, this is what is really, you know, that's, that's PowerPoint slide. And in a kind of tactful way, this is the, what that actually looks like yep. on the ground. Well, it has to resonate, doesn't it? Yeah. What I think. You're going to be most successful at something, personal or professional, that resonates with you. Yeah. Because it's more interesting to you. Yeah. So you're more curious about it. So you want to learn more about it. And then you get more experiences about it, which means you can feedback the input. Yeah. And then you teach us pet. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Pretty much. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so, so we did the, the whole thing in Lapubesi, which, which we gave them the solar. And then the other thing we did, there's a micro-hydro project. So um, obviously running water, powering the electricity for 3,000 people at a massive boulder about, I'll be honest, about the size of this hut had landed smack bang in the middle of it. Um, and we went on two recce to think about how we were going to get rid of it. And in the end, we got the Nepali army to blow it. So they went up there with some Dems and they blew it. Um, how long did that take them? Um, blowing, blowing, blowing boulders is no mean feat. No, that takes a lot of explosives. But when you, when you're in the pool, it's the whole pee for plenty. You know, there's one go, and there's lots of PE, and it, it goes the first time. You know, uh, it's not Pam Twenty One. So the the boulder, so the boulder goes, which then allows us to go out and and then reconstruct the microhydro. So we went out, reconstructed the microhydro, and then our boss, Rich Sharp, thinking he had just joined. He then came out, and obviously he's the CEO. He got to like press the button and turned it all on, which was incredible. So for th they hadn't had any electricity for three years. So lights up for 3,000 people. That's providing electricity for. So that, that was incredible. And then we – so that was about – for me, that was about four trips out to Nepal over a couple of years. And then we developed a relationship with the Gurkha Welfare Trust who are an incredible charity. So they are the charity who look after the um, veteran Gurkhas, retired Gurkhas out in the hills, like the guys I was speaking about in the tracksuit. People are in the Second World War, you know. They've got care homes there. I went to a care home. There was a guy there, and they've got their name, they've got their name when they were serving and their number on the door and a picture. So it's got, like, this guy's now, like, 80. 
you picture of him fit as a fiddle, like Lance Corporal Randit Rye, whatever, blah 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 number, and a picture of him in Borneo. Um, and they've got, I think they've got two care homes in Nepal, and the amount of effort they put into looking after their old people is incredible. Now you think some of the stories you hear from care homes here, it's just incredible, and they're all happy, you know. And they and some of them will just, you know, tell you stories, show you, you know, some worries. This is where I got shot in Borneo. This is where I was in, you know, Burma, Malaya, whole thing. I'm really proud to be Gurkhas. So we started working with Gurkha Welfare Trust, and they have got area welfare centres. 14, I think, all across Nepal. And what we did is we went out and did some disaster management training. So this was two years ago, the first one. Um, some kind of incident management stuff. Uh, I think we did some medicine on the first one, some like medical stuff. And the first one, we did some urban search and rescue, three-day package, train the trainer. So they bring in all their staff, train them, they go out, teach it. And we did that in three locations. And this year... We did it again in January, February, and we did... So more people dying flooding in Nepal every year than we'll do from an earthquake. So we did some flood rescue. Um, so instead of doing the urban search and rescue, we did some flood rescue. <coughs> in the sw and, and again, it's like, you know, making the most of resources. In Kathmandu, it was in the swimming pool. Pokhara, it was in the lake. So it depends on kind of what you've got. And they got a lot out of, they got a lot out of that. And the other thing about Nepal is the... Unfortunately, the, the earthquake in 2015 wasn't the big earthquake that everyone was expecting. So they're still expecting... that was They've done a study at Durham University, I think, and there's going to be another big earthquake in Nepal soon. And I'd say like a year ago, that was the elephant in the room. So you, you're talking about earthquake response with people who've not that long ago, four years previously, you know, survived a massive, two massive earthquakes. Um, and it's quite a difficult subject to broach, so there's going to be another earthquake. And now, for me, it, the, it's much more positive. So people are now openly saying, public messaging is there's going to be another earthquake. We need to be ready. We need to learn all the lessons from 2015, and we need to be prepared. But here's a question for you around that, okay? And it's one I think where I think about, like, Los Angeles and earthquakes and, and other places that are prone to earthquakes and tsunamis and stuff like that. Uh, people don't move. Like people in earthquake-prone areas, they don't shift or disaster, like natural disaster-prone areas. They don't tend to shift. People don't think, eh, maybe we shouldn't live here anymore. Maybe we should move. How does what like what have you? I don't know if you studied that in your international disaster response. That you did, yeah, the I degree mean, or anything. What, what, uh, what is that, and how do you deal with that? So if you look at a country like Japan, they are incredibly well prepared. Right, and it's all about, so you've got what we call the disaster management cycle. So the first bit of that is like mitigation. Right? What, could, what measures can you put in place to make us um, more resilient if there's whatever the hazard might be? Then it's like preparedness, which is the physical measures, which is like tsunami warning, which is how do you construct your houses in somewhere like Nepal? Uh, what early warning systems have you got? What have you got? And, and the other thing about that is I would say that you know, we call ourselves first responders. The first responders are the people who crawl out of those collapsed buildings, 100%. So you've got to kind of embolden that community response. How does the person out in the hills in Nepal tell people in Kathmandu there's been an earthquake and 10 people have been killed in his village? You give him sat phone and you make sure that they know how to charge it or you give them sufficient batteries 
it's waterproof, all that kind of stuff. And then there's the response phase, which is kind of what we do. And then there's the recovery, which is going round and round and round. And I think the problem is for a place like like Nepal, it's relatively small in terms of the whole of the Himalayas. You know, where are all of those people going to move? You know, if you look at Indonesia, Pacific Ring of Fire, um, I think there's something like 4,000 islands in Indonesia spread over, you know, thousands of kilometres. Where, where are all those people going to move? Mm. So I think you've just got to come to terms with it. And on that, the, an interesting point for me, and this is going back to my experiences in Indonesia, is that what you often see is people reverting back to what they had previously done before Western, I'll call them Western, building techniques arrived. So in Indonesia, there are a lot of bamboo structures and they call them barugas. And the good thing about those is that they flex. So after the earthquakes, we've seen quite a few earthquakes in Indonesia, you will see the collapsed best practice breeze block concrete building and there'll be like a bamboo, you know, like an atat, what you would call, I guess, somewhere like Borneo, still standing. And people are now reverting to those techniques because that's what they've always had to do, you know, because these, these events have been happening for thousands of years and they've learned to adapt. Hmm. Interesting. Old school building techniques. Yeah. So I think that the key is going to be the, and they call it, it's like the build back better. It's, I guess it's the combination of how do you embrace modern technology with an eye on what people used to do for good reason, because they're driven by necessity. How do you incorporate the two to make that even better? You know, like an amalgam of the two things. I put the in-laws in the new builds. <laughs> put the in-laws in there and then... And the other thing in a place like <laughs> Nepal is if you impose building regulations in Kathmandu, which is fine, how do you, how do you get out to somebody who's out in the hills and say, we want you to wait until we get out and make sure that your building's fit for purpose and you're using all the right techniques? Do you expect him with his family to live in a shelter while he's got all these materials around him which he can just pick up and put together and rebuild his house. So you've got to either do it quickly or you've got to find some way of, of getting people on board. You know, how, they're going to, how are they going to rebuild these houses? So and it's really simple stuff like just have one-storey structures, you know, rather than having two, just less masonry that potentially going to fall on people. So rather than having a, having a two-storey house which is, you know, 10 metres wide, have, have a one-storey house which is 20 metres wide you know l shapes not joining having a gap in between the various parts of the building you know there's lots of things that you things you can do so i guess it's the it's the kind of education piece can we do you mind if we uh, can we talk about the covid response yeah is sure that right with you? yeah yeah and uh one thing i really have been really curious about since it started is that so i know that so i now know about the origin of uh, yeah the birth of Team Rubicon UK. Yeah. And I know about like the recent rebrand from Team Rubicon UK to React Disaster Response. Yeah. Um, and I know I know a relatively good deal about in, in between yeah. those two periods up to when I joined. Yeah. What I'm interested in is at the start of the pandemic, there was um there was a driven by necessity. There was a shift from 
uh, from the for up React. There was a shift from only deploying uh, uh, people who had been trained to a, to particular levels, to, uh, uh, dependent on the particular operation that we've gone on. And because of the pandemic and the resource that were needed to support everything we support in the NHS and the councils yeah. and all the rest of it, there was a shift away, understandably, uh, to having to rap to deploy people rapidly we literally volunteered maybe the day before or something on the same day and we we're able to deploy on a task led by a a seasoned yeah um up react uh react response team leader yeah. or person what i'm really interested in is how what is your experience your being you and the other um sort of management elements of react what is your what with the challenges you faced there and your experience of dealing with those people who churned up who were I'm a volunteer, I want to help um, and and the challenges you faced with that compared to what you've been doing before where everyone was everyone had been trained up, you wouldn't deploy someone unless they were at, yeah you've done this course you've done this yeah. course, you've done this course So the first thing I think is the is the nature of the environment right? so you're in the UK so COVID aside, the, the risk of transmission of the hazard, which is COVID, it's a permissive environment, right? So previously, you're getting people to a certain level, international responder, because you're going to Mozambique and you're living the environment that you know well that you had to live in. You're thinking about what we were just talking about. You're taking people to Indonesia where you're responding to a hazard, earthquake, tsunami, and while you're there, I mean when Nicola and I went to Lombok, there were another four earthquakes while we were there and hundreds and hundreds of aftershocks. So you're, that is why you've got to get people to that level. And then I think, so that was a part of it, permissive environment outside the you know, transmission of the virus. And then the other bit is you are deliberately only using veteran volunteers. Right, now I know that is a broad church, right? And there's some incredibly good veterans and you know there are people who do a relatively short time um but what you're saying by that is in terms of mitigation you're saying that these people have all received a level of training they all understand values and standards and culture um and for some of the tasks that we were looking for mainly like the strategic lo stuff someone's going to know them or they're going to get you know like recommended by somebody else. Here's someone that I can personally vouch for. Um, and I think because of the numbers that we needed at the beginning, we had to take that step. But what I will say is someone who interfaces with the volunteers all the time, there have been hardly any issues. And I think certainly the, the initial stages, the first wave of the pandemic, I think that was a point in time. I think that was something that will just will hopefully never happen again. And I think you just had people had been in lockdown, so people are pulling their hair out because they've you know been all of a sudden they've been this lockdown's been enforced on them. They genuinely want to help. They buy into the culture piece, and for some of them it was a way of getting out of the house. So all of a sudden someone is giving you a get out of jail free card. You're now a key worker. You can leave your house, go to the garage on the way to work, buy a newspaper, buy a pint of milk, get away from whatever it is that you need to get away from in your house. I think there's definitely an element 
of that in the first wave. But I think for us, the way it's worked as well is our, our philosophy, and this is like international response, is that mission command piece, empowered execution. And that's the only way that what we do can work. So we're very, very comfortable with just saying to somebody, you know, who we've never met before and we've just spoke to on the phone, are you happy volunteering for this task? Here's what our expectations are of you. You need to turn up at, you know, whatever the address is and we expect you to work for about seven days. And here's some broad parameters of what we expect you to do. Yeah, I didn't mean it's it's awesome. I didn't. I don't, I don't think I meant it in a negative way. Yeah, it's just interesting. Interesting to hear that, you know. Um, and yeah, absolutely, mate. Way to get out of the house. People want to help. I mean, whether it's Mozambique, whether it's Nepal, whether it's Indonesia, whether it's flipping Lancashire, COVID nineteen, March, April, it takes a particular type of person. No, or maybe it takes a particular um, aspect of a personality for you to uh, hold a particular asset, even, of a personality to say, yeah, I'll volunteer to go and help and do this, you know, especially when you've got no previous knowledge of the uh, of the organisation you're going to help with, you just yeah. want to go and help. What, Have you had what, what's the feedback been like from 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 civilians who've never been ex? Because obviously, uh, re React response and it's previous, uh, previously what you know as Team Republic on UK, predicate, predicated on uh, a predominantly ex-military uh, organisation of volunteers. What's it been like? Have you what's your observations on the civilian, the civilian uptake of those volunteering positions over the COVID pandemic? Um, yeah, really good. And my, I mean, very my experience, which I've learned. So I think now, if I joined React when I left the army, 2011, and came straight into this role, I would last about five minutes, right? Because I, over a period of time, I have developed my own skill set, leadership toolbox, um, and I've got much, and I've got much more of appreciation of what other people bring to the team. So it's much less of right, I've got all these skills and you just like fall in line behind me and we're going to go and get it done. It's much more of a facilitator, much more of a understanding that these people who come from completely different backgrounds to me, the power of that diversity. You know, you don't, if you've got a four-person team, you don't want like four of me because you've got like 25%. You're filling 25% of whatever it is you need to complete that task because we're all doing the same thing. We've got the same background. If you've got people that come from different We've got different experiences, cognitive diversity. They think differently. Um, they they do things differently in their in their role. They come from a different background. That's really powerful, um, and that's in the UK and overseas. And and the best example I've got of that is the completely diverse team. I think when I was in the pool earlier this year, you had me, full time staff, army veteran. You had Adam, who's serving soldier, colour sergeant. Yeah, you got Keith who uh, hugely experienced and a former director in the NHS, retired. And you've got Laura, who's a Christmas decorator. And that, you know what I mean? And, and on paper, what's going on, that was one of the, the best high-performing teams I've been in because everybody complemented each other and they've all got different skill sets. Yeah, uh, that's a really interesting point there, mate. 
um, and I, it's one that so diversity in the team, and it's one that uh, it's one of those lessons that's taught. You get taught it. I, I can't ever remember being taught it. I think I've ever been taught it apart from recently and uh, in some project management stuff I'm doing. But the importance and benefit of diversity in the team, diversity of backgrounds, cognitive diversity, as you just said, I've never heard that term before, but cognitive diversity. Um, I first experienced that. It, it, I, I see, I, I describe it as uh, you. So when I was serving, uh, I give an example. It was, I'll give an example, I'll give it in a minute, but the point is that you can get given a team. You may not get the opportunity to choose a team. You can given a team. And there may be people in that team that you didn't want. Maybe because of them individually or where they come from, they haven't got the right the right qualifications or skill sets as you see it. But everyone they everyone has a skill. Everyone has a capability. Regardless, they you can be the moron of morons. There is something you can benefit the organization of which you're a part of in. There, there is. Yeah. It just may take a bit longer to find it, right? And uh, and my first experience of that was, um, if anyone can hear a coffin, that's uh, Paul's dog, Hercules. Coffin in the corner. After some drinking some water real quick. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of glad he's come over and uh, resided next to me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so when I was serving, and uh, we were going on a tour, and uh, it was going to be a quite an ar- we probably going to be quite an arduous tour, and the unit I was in we needed bumping up, um, I was in quite a specialist unit, and we got bumped up with people as in numbers we needed more numbers, and we got given people who were were either fresh out of depot training, or they were not qualified or experienced enough on the usual standards, to be in our unit. And over the course of that tour, what I realised was they weren't all cut out to be, to do this, this snipers, right? And they weren't all cut out to be snipers, uh, but they all had something they could bring to the party. And it wasn't necessarily a practical skill either, like shooting or like tactical awareness or like, you know, what X, Y, or Z, yeah. practical military-oriented skill. Some of them were like completely average at everything, which you don't want that in that unit. But those ones are completely average at everything. They were good at something else. Like they were, they had huge morale. They were massive banter. You know, they were, they were caught. They were just a cornerstone personality, for example. Yeah. And that in itself is a skill. Yeah. Is a is an absolute requirement of any team. The, the 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 sort of the soft skills compared to the hard skills you need a measure of both and then the second time I saw that was when I was with um what well, was at the time Team Rubicon UK yeah. last year in Mozambique and I'm at the time I was thirty six yeah shit yeah I was thirty six you know used to be a, um, a senior NCO in Power Edge and I deploy with with uh, Team Rubicon UK to Mozambique, get put on a team. You got a twelve-year-old team. <laughs> <I got> twelve-year-old <laughs> and the team leader, and and so I'm going out there as a oh yeah, predominantly ex-military organisation. I've been a part of, I've been a part of the organisation then for I don't know, three or four months maybe. Uh, three or four months maybe, and then I get out there, thinking yeah, all good, and I was loving it. I was like, man, it was, to me it was like being back on ops. I was like. Yes, 
Gunner packing tactically, you know, everything squared away. I was loving it. Gunner, they've gone out to, you know, make a difference and into a dangerous scenario. Loving it. Like you were the first time in the ball, yeah. I, I guarantee it. And um, I get on the team. <laughs> and I'm, I'm number six to the team. They were, I, I was out there late. Uh, and the team I go on to, the team leader is a civvy. Not only is a civvy, he's like, like you said, 12 years old, like 22. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. He's like 22, yeah. 23 years old. Uh, you know, wet behind the ears, just not an adult. No offense, no offense, Angus. He's all right now. Uh, but at the time, and uh, the whole team was, it, it finished off as mostly civilians with myself and Conrad yeah. Froud as the only two military. Yeah. And so the minority of the team was yeah. military. And also, it was led by a civvy who probably has had all of like three sexual encounters in his life. You know, like Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the same thing happened. Do you know what I learned from it, man? It was a challenge. It yeah. was. I, I. I. It was a challenge. Um, it was a ch- first off. It was a challenge in me. It was a lesson in right. You're not in the. You're not in the military now. Okay, it, 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 yes, things are they're critical decisions that you made, but these are not, I'm going to get my head shot off in the next split second. You know, it was very, very critical, very time, uh, very uh, time, cru- uh, time crucial, um, but not as, not like, you know, we weren't in an earthquake, for yeah, example, yeah, yeah. all the time. Yeah. What we were trying to do is find survivors, what we were trying to do. And so... For my first lesson was, right, bite your tongue. Don't flip out because people are sharing water bottles. Yeah. You know, which yeah. I did a couple of times. Or don't flip out because this person over here, his, his admin is everywhere. His yeah. bag is everywhere. Yeah. Uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And at the end of it, in hindsight, man, I learned a lot. Do you know what? I learned a lot. You know, I learned a lot. I learned from Angus. I learned from... Um, Oh, I can't remember the other guy's name. Ginger guy. Looks like uh, Casper the Friendly Ghost. Uh, uh, Dudley? Hippie. Dudley. Yeah, yeah. yeah. From yeah. from a town called Cheddar. Who's now in. He's now he, in the Royal Engineers. Yeah, yeah. he's engineers. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations, Dudley, as well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, I, I, but I learned. There were certain things. I learned soft skills from those yeah, lads. Yeah. I learned soft skills that I'd probably either forgotten of my time in the military or never had. And when I say soft skills, I mean, the, I remember... I remember watching Dudley in a couple of villages. We were going out, and I was doing whatever I was doing. Um, and he was there, and he was cause the team leader, and he was engaging with people. And I remember watching him and think, and I just think, fucking hell, he has nailed that. He's got that down to a T. Just the way his mannerisms were, how he how he was speaking to them. Bearing in mind, he doesn't even speak the language, but they were completely receptive to him. And I thought, ah, you know, it, 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 it you, you can go in with a mission to somewhere and objectives, but the people you're going in to get those to achieve those mission objectives with, they ain't got a fucking clue, and their priorities are entirely different to yours, and so they ain't going to immediately align what you need. There needs to be an in between. You need to, you know, you need the empathy being one. You know, I'm not saying I'm not, em- I'm not saying I'm empathetic. Yeah. I am very. I have got a lot of empathy, but in from a like uh, looking at Angus at that time in Mozambique, what Angus did differently to what I would have maybe done is 
He displayed the empathy. It was on show. Yeah, yeah. It was on show completely. Yeah. I am on your side. I learned a huge amount yeah. from, from Dudley. Yeah, I that's what I learned. I learned, in my time doing that, I've learned two things. It's like, know what you're good at, but also know what you're not good at, right? So, and that's like when me and Lizzie are going to recce, right? I, I always take someone, and it's diversity, right? It's obvious diversity, someone who's female, right? And I've taken Nicola with me, Taryn was on the recce, Mozambique, Lizzie in the Bahamas. So straight away, there's some kind of diversity. And when it comes to like negotiations, particularly at the initial stages of a disaster, you've got to get access. You can't just turn up, hey, where are we at? Yeah, fine, crack on. You've got to prove your capability. And sometimes when I go on a negotiation, and me and Lizzie now just do it almost naturally, you kind of know who's going to be the best person. And that's the emotional intelligence piece. So you size up whoever it is you're going to be negotiating with. And it might be a ex-military person so I'll lead and I'll lean on my military experience and I'll do a bit of name dropping and all the rest of it it might be that I think this is busy he's going to get more out of it than me so I'll take a back step you lead the negotiation so it's that bit and the other thing that I've learned a lot since leaving the military is let go of the reins so if I think about when I was in the military I let go let go let go, what, the, let go of the reins so if I think when I was like a young NCO, British Army, you knew how to do a, whatever it was, attack, recce patrol, whatever, stage by stage, face by face, right, and everyone could recite it. And there's a bit of left and right within the parameters, but basically there was a, there was a, a way of doing all the things that you had to achieve. And I would expect anybody else to do it broadly in a similar fashion, right? Um, but what I've and I would be uncomfortable if someone was doing it differently. I'd be like, oh, you know, it's a bit crazy. What are you doing? Why are you doing that? You know, you should obviously go right flanking, right? I'll give me an example. But what, what I've seen with volunteers is, is, is I've learned to, I've seen someone do something completely different to the way that I would do it. And just give them enough rope and allow them to do it. And nine times out of 10, they reach the same objective. Do you know what I mean? So that, that's the learning piece for me. It's like, okay, that's a bit weird and wonderful. Okay, but actually, it's, they're, they're going in the right direction. I'll just leave them. Or I'll resource them, you know, I'll support them. Um, yeah, nine times out of ten, they, they achieve it. Mm. Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, do, you think, uh, do you think the... The... Wave is the wrong fucking word. Do you think the momentum behind uh, the behind React the, in terms of volunteer support on that first wave? Do you think that is going to be a uh, carry on after the pandemic finishes? I hope so. I yeah, hope I hope so. so. I hope so. And I, I think the the onus is on us as the headquarters um, to do everything we can to engage with volunteers, make them feel valued. Um, there are going to be people who are in areas of the country where there are going to be more opportunities to respond, right? There are going to be people who, who with the best will in the world, you're never going to get, you know, put a T-shirt on and go out on the ground because it just hasn't, and that's a good thing, really, you know, big scheme of things. It just hasn't affected the area where you live. Um, so I think we need to, there's, there's two things at the end of this. Prior to COVID, we had a very limited domestic response capability it's mainly flooding 
Um, so we are getting more flooding in the UK as a result, I would say, of climate change. Um, but it's very piecemeal. You know, uh, We had some relationships with local resilience forums. Sometimes we would almost send a volunteer on the day and explain who we were and these are our capabilities and can we help. Whereas now we are plugged in to like UK resilience at almost every single level. And that's one of our roles now is to develop that. Um, and we've got some really good React people who are sitting at various levels driving what is going on across the UK, um, particularly in uh, cooperation with the British Red Cross. So that, I mean that, so that means that we're going to have a domestic response uh, capability, a more joined up capability, you know, into next year, and then hopefully, um, I reckon post Christmas, early next year, we'll then start deploying internationally, um, and we will start using all. You know, we've been doing this for five and a half years internationally, using all that experience, and it really, for me. The two things where it we really started nailing it were Mozambique, I think was the first one, where and you've seen the like you know the praise we got from Sebastian, who was running the UN response. So Mozambique was a bit of a game changer, because people across kind of international humanitarian community were standing up and taking note. Actually, these people have got real capability, and then riding on the wave of that, however many months later, was the Bahamas. And I turned up in the Bahamas and people kind of knew, people in the UN knew who we were. Um, oh. Yeah. Do you know what I think the difference is, mate, in to, from, from the organisation to others? I mean, all, all, all you know, charitable, most <laughs> charitable organisations do a good thing, and especially the disaster response ones. But do you know what? One of the things I know, uh, granted, I have, mate, I've been on one, you know, opera, uh, one international operation with, uh, with the organisation and... Uh, one you know domestic but one of the things i noticed about what sets the organization apart from others i think i think it is the thing i i, I don't think it's the thing that makes the capabilities so much more than others is that is is the fact that is that the ex-military presence is so heavy in there now that is not me saying ex-military are better but the reason i say it is why well, that is the big difference is because that ex-military presence, we are, we, we have in our military careers, our our assessment of risk versus reward. We, our margins are much narrower. We are willing to make to take much more risk to achieve the aim than what our civilian counterparts are. And again, that is not me saying ex-military any better than civilians civilian ex any better ex-military it's simply the nature of the beast in our background compared to civilians background civilian really don't need it, it, those margins don't need to be as close when you talk about risk in whatever you're doing in the military world the, the margins need to be a lot closer and, you, and the risks and the the impact of those risks be, you know becoming real are much higher so we're just used to it so when you translate that into going on uh, deploying to Mozambique, deploying to Nepal, deploying to Indonesia, and going and a, and a and a problem coming across your desk, a problem comes across the React desk, we immediately see that we what we see as achievable is above and beyond what an adjacent organisation sees as achievable because our, we just see we can achieve more within within the risk constraints. 
Yeah. Because that's what we used to yeah. do in. You're going, okay, what is what is the minimum safe option here that we can that we can go to uh, and not encounter any casualties? It, that's the simple math is what we do. Yeah, yeah. And because we're so used to having made those calculations and, and weighing it all up historically throughout our military careers, then we're just better at making those calculations so we can more, be more precise and yeah. take more risk. And for me, there's two things. So, the, And the other thing is experience, you know, which is, the, which is the one thing that you can't buy. You know, and if you could, people would be queuing up around the block trying to buy it, right? So you've got that experience. <coughs> and some of my experiences in the military translate directly to things that have happened in React, right? And I am now... So no names, no pack drill. There have been situations where um, incidents have happened on the ground. Um, people have um, reacted like you do, you know, when you're in, you're in it, you know, you're in contact, as it were. And sometimes all you want to do is, the, is to get out of it. And that's the easy option. And you know, that's the, right, I just want to get out. And I think about when I was in their shoes, when I was like a young soldier, um, in various circumstances. And I think of my platoon commander, sergeant major, in the ops room. No, you're going to stay put. You're going to be all right. Right, because they were older, wiser, more experienced. A step back in the ops room with a cup of tea, and they got more bandwidth. So they're looking left and right. So I'm, you know, in a hole in the ground, let's say, in an OP, think I've been compromised. My bandwidth is like that, right? Because I'm like flapping. I'm like a penguin on fire, right? But the sergeant major, who's 20 years older than me, who did exactly the same thing when he was a young soldier, it's like left, he's looking left and right, you know? You're going to be all right. So that bit translates for me. And then the other bit, I think, is the what we definitely do is the dynamic risk assessment. So there are some organisations that will have a, a country policy. right? So if you are operating in the Democratic Republic of Congo, you are not allowed to do X, Y, Z, whatever, go outside at night, drive down this road, do any you know number of things. For us, it's a dynamic risk assessment. Now, I know... FCO advice is this, but I'm going to trust the person who's on the ground who's telling me it's safe to go down that road because I'm the person on the ground, right? So I'm going to listen to you. Um, and the best example of that, when I, met, I went back to Mozambique, big charity, again, no, no names, no pact rule, the Irish government had donated, I think, 60 tonnes of humanitarian aid to them to be distributed, and they hadn't distributed it. And the Irish government said oh, we're going to send over our foreign minister to have a look and see where all the aid's gone. And they're like, panic on, right? So they're flapping, how do we get the aid out? And they weren't really sure. And Ben, who's our um, director of humanitarian operations now, was ops director, was in the ops room in Berra and said, we can do that. So I then flew out um, with a team. And again, a diverse team, right? So you've got me, you've got IFA, Rifle Sergeant Major, you've got Tamara and Joe in their 20 civvies, but have been interns, who absolutely nailed it. And again, it's the, it's the kind of the military experience, ground truth. So you show me an Excel spreadsheet that says that that distribution centre is at grid 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Um, how big is it? Can you get a 30 tonne truck in? Can that 30 tonne truck cross that bridge, which is between that and Berra? Not really sure. So Ivor and I went out for 10 days, driving around in a 4x4, when the charity that we were working with wasn't allowed to be out overnight. 
So they had to go back to a safe location every night. <coughs> we were just sleeping out in the bush, eating rush packs, doing the recce essentially, making sure that the you know the bridge capacity would take the vehicles, whatever. And then Tamara and Joe were doing a brilliant job organising the labour force, basically packing the trucks and then taking them out, meeting me and I for out on the ground, and then we're doing the distribution. So it's th that's a good example. That is that is a dynamic risk assessment. The situation in Mozambique now is difficult, is different to when it was when that country risk assessment was written. Mm. Yeah, it is a challenge, isn't it? It's, I, I, I'm very, I, th I can't say I'm very lucky to have been able to see um, one as that like that Mozambique up. Be my first time doing anything in the that um, charity sector, let alone disaster response sector. I can't, but I can't say I'm very lucky of been able to go and experience the um oh god what the bloody hell is it called at the airport what was it called the eoc there yeah no yeah. the eoc the emergency ops center yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And, and be able to experience that there and that and one was the that communication information challenge that every charity fit and not every charity, every organisation, every organisation there was a charity, right? But every organisation there faced. But two, one of the things that really struck me um, was the way that the organisations, particularly charities, and particularly charities in the responsible for the same sort of areas, and in, in terms of um, need areas, you know. Uh, sanitization, hygiene, yep. water, food, shelter, all that, comms, was the way that they were very secretive from each other and they didn't, they thought it was, they were, they saw each other as competitors. So instead of trying, instead of trying to meet the need, coming together and meet the needs of the beneficiaries, the people in, in tatters, in the, those areas that have been smashed by the floods, they were instead trying to, they were trying to meet the needs of themselves to, to, to get one over on their a similar organisation yeah, in yeah. the same department in the same sort of need sector, so I'm getting the, I'm getting the yeah, terminology right, but, wrong. And, and another thing for that is because it's all funding. Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, well, this is this is my point. Yeah. which is all funding. Yeah. And and so what solidified for me my opinion of um, Team Rubicon UK, which is now React Response, and I'll be honest with you, and I've I've said this to Paul Godonis, you know, I probably haven't said it to Sharpie just for lack of opportunity. But, but before that, you know, I, I joined I joined the organisation because people I respect and admire are part of it. And they they encourage me to do the same. Paul Godonis, for example. Ash Fletcher, for example. Del Ashley, for example. You know, um, Baz Cox, for example. Um, but when I joined, I was, I was, I was as sceptical... Of it as an as a charity as I was of every other charity. I'm very skeptical of charities, very skeptical yeah. all the time. I think everyone should be. Everyone should be skeptical of everything until they've uh, of everything until they've proven it right. Uh, but apparently, especially the charity sector. And what's what solidified my opinion of that I hold now of React Response, which is a very high opinion. Like you can get any more of an organ honest organization. I can parallel it with maybe a couple of others. You know, in the military, in the military charity sector, which React aren't, but they're popular by ex-military people. What solidified it for me was oh, an experience over that entire three, three and a half weeks that I was there, 
was it was completely open. Every single person that I encountered or engaged with within within the organisation, from Laura, for example, to, uh, you know, in the EOC, to people like myself and Dudley and Angus and and Conrad and everyone else on the ground in the strike teams, my experience of that was everyone was open. There was no, oh, I'm going to keep this bit of information to myself and not share it just in case the other charity gets an upper hand on me. And I saw that with other charities. I saw that with other charities of very similar fucking names, you know, with slightly different uh, countries at the end of the names, yeah. right? I saw it. Yeah. What I saw with Team Rubicon UK, no react, was yeah. that, no. You know, what you are, are now is, no, completely open. Even to the point where I remember... Um, Medicine Sound, so Medicine Sound Frontier. Yeah. Like they, I remember hearing, I can't remember which organisation that told me while I was out there. It's like don't engage with them. Medicine Sound Frontier are a flipping nightmare because they won't work with the UN. They do what they want. They go everywhere. You're there and everywhere, and they're just a nightmare, a law unto themselves. Now, Mike, I don't know about your experience, but my experience that everyone's out there. It's like, all right, one. When I met Medicine San Frontier, when I was on the ground, you know, we, we were in, like, the uh, Ulu, so to speak. Man, they were doing fucking awesome work, and yeah. they didn't care. They were like, we're here, we've got loads of care, we're going to help people, and we ain't going to be beholden to anyone, right? Yeah. So, fuck you, you like, UN, fuck you, uh, EOC, whatever. And I can understand that mentality. I can also see the challenges that they give themselves by, by yeah. having that mentality. Yeah. But... When they came upon the area I was in, and our team was in, Angus's team was in, we didn't not engage with them because we were told not to. And it, just to, it wasn't like react, told yeah. us not to. Yeah. It was, no one told us not to, but uh, on a formal basis. Yeah. But it was like, you just don't bother with them kind of thing because they're a pain in the arse. We didn't not. Because one, we had information that could help them. They're cutting about trying to give people medical aid, right? And we'd been in these villages, we knew people needed medical aid. Knew it. And these guys, medicine, Sam Frontier, who are cutting about in a scorpion wagon, like six of them, eight of them, in the back of this wagon, which is the worst cross-country wagon ever invented. But they're doing it anyway, you know. And uh, and, and they, we had information we could give them, which could help them. So why wouldn't we? Yeah. And similarly, we start engaging with them. They start engaging with us. And, and, and lo and behold, the first day we met them, then it turned into a map map on the desk, and everyone's behind it. Me, Angus, the whole team, the farmer on whose farm we were staying, the farmer from 400 kilometers south of where we were, who'd driven up to try and help, yeah. is engaging with them as well, because do you know what you can do? You can get petrol, and you can get diesel. And if you want it, you can get Avgas for the helicopters, if you can yeah. get helicopters in. And everyone's behind it. There was nothing in there. Everyone was just trying to help each other. And... And that that was that's what solidified but my my opinion yeah. of the of the charity. And, and for us, if we didn't collaborate, we would we would achieve absolutely nothing. So if you think about if there's a disaster, me and let's say Lizzie flying on recce, we got very little money, right? We got no kit, and but what we are is we are force multipliers and the glue that brings people together. Right, so we get it's about getting people on board, getting consensus. Have you spoken to this charity? Have you spoken to this charity? And sometimes you've got to bite the bullet. You know, it would be great if we did that, but 
it would benefit the local people much more if you did it because you've got better capability than we have. So you've got to collaborate from the get-go. And the other bit is on volunteers. What I love about volunteers is they hold you to account, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm paid staff, right? I'm, I'm a paid humanitarian. Every minute, every day I'm in the disaster zone, someone's paying me. Um, volunteers are giving up paid work to go and deploy, right? which is great. And what I love is if there's a political decision that's being made, you know, someone in the headquarters, like Sharpie might say to me, there's a very good reason why we don't want to do this. And it's a political reason, right? And I, and I get it, you know, politics play a part. The volunteers will go ram it. There's no way. We're here to help people, right? No, that, that's bullshit. We are here to help people. So they're really, op it's that bit you said, they're open and honest and they hold you, you to account. And it's like a, it's really pure. You know what I mean? That, in, the, that intent, and you, you know, you've done it, that, that wanting to help people, that humanitarian imperative, Oh mate, it's really pure. Absolutely, and 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 it's you know, I would not want to be Richard Sharp. I would not want for the reasons you just said. I would not want to be any boss of any charitable organisation, because oh my god, he, he, like you said, you will get held to account. There is nothing, you know, like in a business in a company, you've always it's always a, it's always something holding back the employee from speaking their mind. Yeah. And it's predominantly money. Yeah. Am I going to lose my job yeah, yeah, if yeah. I say, what the hell are we doing? Mate, don't get that in a charity because no one's getting paid. No one's getting paid. And so, as you said, mate, that is, I would not, I would not want to be a CEO. I would not. And, I mean, it, and the other, the best example I've got of that is in the Bahamas where we were supporting the Haitian population, right? So there's a, there were about, I don't know, Three and a half thousand Haitians in Abaco, which was the island that we were working on, right? And they came over in the 50s, about a thousand of them, to work on a legitimate farm. Um, and then they've just grown and, you know, people's sons and daughters and whatever across the island. And they're living in a shanty town called The Mud in Marsh Harbour, the capital. And they're in this place called The Farm. And these places are shanty towns um, and they have become no go areas. So there are people there who are just ordinary people like you and me trying to, you know, get by and, and make a living. And because it's no-go areas, there's then an illegal element, you know, drugs, prostitution, and people trafficking. They're trying to get people from Haiti via the Bahamas into the States because people want to get out of Haiti. And we got to the point where we were supporting this community in Abaco, and the, the government said that we're not to support the Haitians, right? And we had the chat around the fire, same thing, volunteers, like, no way. We're supporting the Haitians, like it or not. So we, we made a decision that we would still support them, but we would not broadcast it on social media. Right? So we're still going to support the Haitians. And while we were there, I remember there was a, um, a delegation of... They're from a church group in Mississippi, Mississippi, turned up on a big bus with food and clothes, which is good, right? what they need. But then these six guys got off the bus... They look like Navy SEALs, right? They've got hunting knives strapped to their, you know, the full part. They've got hunting knives strapped to their thighs. They've got sunglasses on. They've got these crazy, like, skeleton face masks. So I went, and they're intimidating the local people, right, who have already traumatised because of the hurricane. So I went to the, the pastor. I said, who are these crazy security? Why do you need security detail? 
You know, what's the issue? What's the threat, basically? Um, and he said they're Haitians. But that doesn't doesn't really cut across for me. They're human beings, you know, like me and you. And they've been traumatised by Hurricane. Um, and they're probably struggling to survive anyway. And I went to the... Um, whoever he was, the like, leader of this security detail, and basically told him to leave. Um, which he eventually he did, like, after calling me all the names under the sun. But then when we went back to the the kind of UN brief with government, you're able to say, so the government are saying, well, we want you, the humanitarians, to pass pass information to the Haitians, and they wanted them to basically leave and go to Nassau, which is the capital, on the, another island, Grand Providence. Just by being a humanitarian, you're able to say, that's fine, but who's looking after their children? Who's providing, who's educating them? What? How are their medical, medical needs being met? What's happening with their personal belongings? You know, what's happening with the properties that they've got if you want them to move? And as soon as you've said it in a public forum, that's it. You know, you're holding people to account. So I think on the back of that Bahamas trip that we did, that really became evident, I think, to us, how powerful it is just being a humanitarian. Mm. You know, and it's that kind of, it's that independence, neutrality piece for us you know we're not but we're not beholden to any kind of politics economics whatever we're just here to help people mm. that's the most important thing you know like i said mate um that uh my experience in mozambique it's uh you sort of got the 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 the, the, the purest the purest view of it um as an organization we have to help people that's what comes first everyone else comes second Everything else comes second, you know, um, I, I, and which is one of the reasons why, you know, as as Sharpie has mentioned himself, which is one of the reasons why the, the organisation needed to come to an end, uh, a halt at the end of Mozambique, because of the funding. We're now there, we're going to help people, that's, that's the primary focus, and nearly end, end up in his ass, um, just from a, you know, a financial perspective. But then, you know, look what it is now in terms of capability. Uh, Mate, fascinating chat. What have we not talked about? Um, what haven't we talked about? What do you want to talk about? Um, I'll tell you what, I've got a few stories about expeditions. So in Secret Compass, in between leaving the army and the uh, React disaster response team Rubicon. So three... Are you making these stories up? No, no, no. Is these like Fusilier it's stories? It's all legit. It's all legit. <laughs> so three expeditions to Sierra Leone. So I spent a year in uh, Sierra Leone in the army, in IMAP, yeah. in a place called Daru, which was right out on the Liberian border. So you used to do three weeks up country, four days back in Freetown, get your vehicle service, debrief, go back out. What year was this? Uh, what, this what? would have been 2007, 2008. So six years after the end of the war. And running a basic, running a battle school, basically. So you were mentoring Sierra Leonean Army staff. Um, really rewarding. At the time, Sierra Leone was the poorest country in the world. Bottom of the UN Global Development Index. Um, so you're living on your own with like 600, got a Land Rover, a little house, 600 African soldiers who you're living with and working with. And it was like defence diplomacy. So yeah, you're, it's a means to an end. So we're training the Sierra Leoneans in jungle warfare, but 
what you've done is at the end of the war, you've brought together the what was the Sierra Leonean army, what who were the rebels, the RUF, who were fighting each other. You're now saying to them, if we give you, and it's the poorest country in the world, so if you join the new Sierra Leonean army, you will get um, food, which is one cup of rice a day. That is the ration. You will get some, you might get a house, and you'll get some medical support for you and your family. Um, so if you think about what happened in Iraq and like the debathification process, all that kind of stuff, here you've just immediately got everyone on side because you've given everyone what they want. So you've got people in your, you're doing a, like a, a platoon run. You've got people who five years ago were killing each other. You've got people who might have been carrying out atrocities. You know, you've seen all the, you know, amputees and all the rest of it in Sierra Leone. So a year there, I mean, that's really rewarding. And, and, and I guess in line with what I do now gives you a lot of humility when you're living in an environment like that where people are so poor. And then got a secret compass gig. So the first expedition we tried to do was go down a river on the east of Sierra Leone, Moa River, which was the barracks I used to live in, was called Moa Barracks. And it's about just over 200 k's long. And we tried to get down it using um, local dugouts. And it's pretty remote. And the first day, at the end of the first day on the river... When you say dugouts, you mean uh, tree trunks? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And at the end of the first day, we did about 20 k's on the river. The kind of procedure is you, you stop at a village if you want to stay there, you approach the headman, and you have some money in the palm of your hand. Like, but you literally grease his palm. So you shake hands, he's left with a thousand leones or whatever it is, not much money, about a fiver. And then you say to him, can we stay in your village? And I always remember, as I was approaching him, this is like the first night of the expedition, I was walking up the ramp from where we'd stopped in the river, identified who I thought the headman was. And as I'm walking towards him, he shouted at me, you are looking for your white brother, Mr Walsh. He was here in 1991... And he went that way. And that was the last time they seen a white person yeah. in that village. And he was probably a soldier. You know, the war started in 1991. He was probably a whatever, UN or whatever soldier. So that's kind of how <laughs> remote it was. And then we got about two-thirds of the way down this river. Um, it didn't really work because we... The Sierraians don't know what tourism is, right? And why should they? You know, they're just trying to survive in a quite harsh environment. So there was like, you were being handed over from one community to another community. The boats wouldn't turn up. Um, I got malaria, like, halfway through it. So the whole thing didn't really work. So we went back a, about a year or two years later in pack rafts, right? So a pack raft is like a... They, they originate from the kind of survival dinghies that you'd see on like a World War II plane. So inflatable raft, one person. So we got about, and now instead of relying upon the locals, you're self-sufficient. So you're carrying your own food, lightweight rations, got your raft, got your rucksack. Um, and we got about 18 miles from the end of the river. Um, somebody capsized, had a bad experience, and we had to basically had to pull out. So we basically... Somebody back in the UK went on Google Earth, found a village, trekked to the village, organised pickup, And then we went back about two years later, actually, for a... I don't know if you know the charity Adaptive Grand Slam. No, Martin, uh, Martin Hewitt, Power yeah, Ranch yeah, officer, yeah, yeah, yeah. who was on Everest last year. Yeah. So they are an incredible 
charity. So that started off with Martin getting involved in all these expeditions with like walking for the wounded, going to the North Pole. I think he did, he had an Everest attempt. And I think as he was doing it, he kind of realised, well, why am I why am I only kind of like helping myself? You know, I'll get other soldiers on board. So he got other soldiers in the team. And then it got to the point like, why am I only helping other soldiers? Why don't I just help anybody with a disability? So now there's like civvies, you know, people who've got disabilities from birth come on them. And they were looking for an opportunity to do an exped. Um, lots of their stuff is like mountain-based. What do we do for people who can't get out in the hills? We put them in a raft. Right? So as long as they can float, then, you know, they're going to be fine. So we took, we did a recce, basically, a trial run on this river. Um, Goldman Sachs paid for it. Um, we took some of their people out. And we did about half of this river trip. Um, and then the year before, um, Ebola had hit Sierra Leone. So we couldn't go out to Sierra Leone on this pack raft exped. So again, this was like a nice part of being a freelancer before I did react. Get an email, do you want to go out to Gabon on a recce for a pack rafting exped the next year? So Gabon is, they want it to be like Costa Rica. Just like, a, it's, a par it's basically like a paradise. And long term, in about 10 years time, they want it to be high end, sustainable tourism so there'd be luxury lodges and you know all the rest of it um lots of elephants there um i think they've got the highest density of bird life in africa so flew out to gabon for two weeks whereabouts is gabon, gabon in africa? is in equatorial africa so smack bang in the middle on the um, west coast so if you think about the what they call the bite of benin so nigeria ivory coast benin that bit there just as it just as it on the corner out. Bang on the equator. Yeah. And went out with... Um, and they had no tourism there at all. So the idea was to get permission for us to do the first adventure tourism expedition in Gabon. With a view to... Our bit was... It will then raise awareness of Gabon in line with your 10-year like, plan. So went out, um, went out in the Ivindo National Park and spent four days in a dugout going up river because got a outboard motor with three guys from a local eco charity local people from gabon and got to this place they call the by which is a pygmy word for a clearing and so i think four days up river a day trekking to get to the by and then we climbed we got to the edge of the by and there's this guy called ramon who was the leader of the eco guys, hadn't smiled for the whole time we'd been out. <laughs> Halfway up a tree, he turns around with a big cheesy grin and like a thumbs up. And then we get into the tree and we're all sat on a branch and there are a herd of 25 forest elephants 100 metres away. It's incredible. And having fortunately been, you know, lots of wildlife stuff, you get that real sense like this is real. You know, you're in their backyard. This, is where the, this isn't where, like, Mr. Lion turns up and you drive past in your 4x4. Four four. This is it. This is, like, where, the, where they live. And they, what they do is they clear the jungle so that... So they're forest elephants, so they're small. They've got long tusks. They clear the jungle. All the other animals think, oh, this is a good idea because they get some sun on their skin. They socialise. They mate. So the gorillas turn up. Birds come. All these different animals. And then we... We went back to 
uh, Libreville, Capital, got green light, run an exped, went back to UK. And we ended up doing a, a different exped. Um, so that one's kind of still on hold, doing that whole thing with the elephants. And this was going to be the first descent of the Gigi River. So this is a big river in Gabon, which they didn't think anyone had ever been down the whole length of it. So we, so we spent three days, three and a half days, cross-graining through the jungle, 35 kilo packs. So you've got 19 days food in your Bergen rucksack. Straight through, there's no paths. So local guys, one of them's on Silver Compass Barry. What kind of jungle? Primary, tertiary, secondary? This is probably secondary jungle. So you've got to cut through it all. Yeah. So you've got one guy, got two guys. One is on Silver Compass Barry. So we've worked out that we can probably move seven Ks a day, um, a K an hour, right? And on Google Earth, we've plotted where we think our camps are going to be because it's close to a water source. We've then given the guide that on a Silver Compass. So he's now got a bearing to move on. And the other guy has got a prang. Locals. Locals. So <laughs> one guy's moving, keeping on the bearing, one guy's cutting. And we're behind them with massive packs hanging out, climbing over tree trunks and crawling under and whatever. So it took three and a half days to get to the river and then ten days on the river. And no one had, we don't think anyone had been down the river before because it's in the middle of nowhere, difficult to get to. Um, and in the middle of it is the Gigi waterfalls, which are the biggest waterfalls in West Africa. So we're approaching waterfalls in our rafts, lots of rapids, um, lots of like dynamic risk assessments. So you've got to gauge how close you can get to, you obviously don't want to go over the Gigi waterfalls. So you've got to gauge how close you can get before you get out. Then you're trekking around the side of the falls to get back in, to then get back in the boats, to then carry on to the bottom um yeah and that was the that was like one of the real joys of doing all that you know the freelance expedition mm. guiding and that again again is all those skills that you've learned in the military and that you've developed when you've been out it's that real i mean that's a good thing about the secret compass piece is that the the people who sign up for it they're part of the team you know there are some expeditions that you can go on where you're very much being guided you know here you you're you're taking the water bag down to the river if you're part of the team you know you're getting the scoff on you're making the fire you, you you've got a role and i think as a result of that that when you achieve something like that you can genuinely say to the team we all achieved that objective mm. it's like that bit about you know diversity of the team and you get much more out of it yeah yeah i agree mate i, I didn't i knew you were part of secret compass i didn't realize levels he's never mentioned it to me that's uh, no. It sounds mega, mate. Absolutely. You, the more included you are in in, in a team and whatever striving towards whatever objective, the more um, benefit you get from it. The more stimulus you get from it. Um, been an absolute pleasure talking. React Response website. Yeah. So www.react.org.uk and that's R E hyphen A C T. You know. And just because you're age, you know you don't have to say www.anymore. anymore. Thanks very much, Hugh. Um, any more internet tips, just follow away. <laughs> we can talk, you can talk offline, see what I did there? React, <laughs> is it react-reorg? It's re-act. Oh, re-act.org.uk. No www.org, that's out now. You don't have to say that. And the other thing is, if you want to sign up, 
to support COVID response, when you go on the website, um, if you are a veteran, you can click a button and you can, or a blue light responder, you can click the button and you can get involved. If you are a civilian, you can still join. At some point in time, and I would, it shouldn't be uh, too long, we will start training again. So in terms of COVID response to help out as of like, you know, the day after you click the button, you can be a veteran or a blue light responder. If you're a civilian, there will be um, opportunities for training and then we'll be hopefully back into a normal jogging of domestic response, international response, sometime probably early next year. Yeah, sweet. Just just a fucking harp on that on that point. If you, I mean, ex-military or civilian, in your, you, you know, you you feel you're calling to go and help out in the community or, or or help out in some positive way, then do so. But more so for the ex-military folk. Um, if you are uh, potentially feeling a little bit lost, maybe you recently got out, maybe you got out years ago and. You're sort of not where you need to be mentally. You're not getting what you need in life from uh, like you did when you were serving. Something's missing, but you don't know what. Uh, that was my situation, certainly, over the last few years. And one of the big, big, big things that helped me to overcome that and to um, put the square peg in the square hole was uh, was React Response. So um, I highly recommend it. Hundred percent. Highly recommend it. I think the other thing on that, Hugh, is okay. if you are a and again, I've been a volunteer for three years. You've got nothing to lose, right? So, if we go back to like pre-COVID and what hopefully will happen post-COVID, you're going to do a relatively small amount of training. You're going to do an induction course for for a weekend. You're going to do a four or five day international operations course. We make no obligation of you whatsoever. Once you've done that training, there's no oh you haven't deployed yet, you haven't done this, you haven't done that. Because we totally understand that people have got family, work commitments, whatever it is. But you just never know when the stars are going to align. You've got two weeks off work, you're on leave, and you just go away and you have an incredible life-changing right. experience. I am glad you just said that. I'm glad. I'm glad. This sounds like a fucking pitch, doesn't it? I'm 100% glad you said that. You reminded me of it. So just to clarify, it doesn't cost you anything, right? You know, have to pay for fucking training, have to pay for jack shit, okay? I'm glad you said that, Paul, because... Like I said before, I had I I had no opinion of um, React before I joined up, and then when I did join up, I had one hundred. And I've said this to Paul. I've definitely said this to Sharpie. I might have said it to you before. I've definitely said it to other people. I thought there's no way I'm going to be able to deploy in anything, ever, because I'm so busy. Divorced. My kids are in one part of the country. I'm in another. I do the fucking podcast. I got a day job within Marsa. It's like I get zero time. And then Mozambique happened. I got asked to go, or no, I didn't get asked to go, but I got the email from you guys that said, this is happening, we need people to deploy, can you go? And the stars aligned, mate. My kids happened to go on holiday for 10 days, or no, they're gone for a week or 10 days, I can't remember what it was. And I also happened to be uh, a project that was supposed to be happening, was not happening at work. All the stars aligned, I was able to go. But if I hadn't signed up in the first place, I would never have the option to go because it wasn't off a whip, you know. Uh, so just back to it. Man, you know, yeah, fucking, if you're ex-mill, sign up. I, it doesn't cost you anything. You, you've got to be in it to win it. Uh, you could sign up. You could get down um, to uh, Chilmark, Salisbury, where the training courses are run, do the training courses, and then, you know, you could get thrown 5, 10, 15 
ops in the next year, two years, and maybe you say no to all of them because you can't make it. But it doesn't matter. At least you're still getting the option. But then one might rock up and you can make it. And it might be in the UK, helping out people domestically in the UK, which, which React do do and have done repeatedly over the last couple of years and even more so with the pandemic. Or it might be in, in, over, overseas. And uh, you signed up, you're good to go and you can make it. You go, fucking hell, I can do this one. And the next thing you know, you're on a doing good things for good people, back in the old military vibe and getting something from an amazing organisation. And you, I know myself. you've done it, Hugh, but, and, and again, it sounds like a pitch, but I... It oh, these are complete pitches. I said it, for, <laughs> I, I, I said it about myself in the pool, that was a game changer. That, that changed my life and it changed a lot of the way that I think about the way that I lead my life. Um, and as a result of that, hopefully I think I lead it a lot better. And I know untold volunteers that we've got who generally said to me, that is the best experience I have ever had in my life you know these are 50 year old people who've done all kinds of different things that is the best two weeks I've ever spent in my life cheers buddy cheers you pleasure that's it thank you for listening if you enjoyed the podcast you can support the podcast by joining by signing up um, via Patreon patreon.com forward slash HK podcast you get access to all the podcasts before anyone else uh, you get access to all sorts of stuff actually that no one else gets um, so yeah patreon.com forward slash HK podcast thanks again to all my Patreon supporters thank you again to my um, sponsors Rugby for Heroes raising money for military charities through uh, fundraising events uh, predominantly revolving around uh, rugby thank you to Mike and everybody at Rugby for Heroes rugbyforheroes.org and also thank you to the Aardvark group who through technical innovations are trying to rid the world of uh, unexploded ordnance unexploded munitions and mines a huge task that is uh, that, yeah, it's a huge undertaking. You can find out more about Aardvark at aardvark.group. Um, if you, yeah, again, if you're enjoying the podcast, there is a, we do have a merchandise shop. So you go to shop.charliecharlie1.com, shop.charliecharlie1.com. There's uh, all sorts of merchandise in there. You've got like HR mugs, you've got T-shirts, you've got veteran-owned brands around there. Like we said we've got Greenberry coffee is sold on there, all sorts of stuff. Take a look. You may not have been aware, but take a look. Shop.charliecharlie1.com. That's it. Thank you for listening. And uh, yeah, catch you next time. Out.